0: Uh, Ten years ago, the sociologist Christian Smith published a very important study about the the religious beliefs of American teenagers. Uh, These were kids who are my age now, so this was my generation being studied. And they interviewed an enormous representative pool of my peers. And what they found is that in my generation... Really, no matter what your background was, no matter what part of the country you're from, no matter how rich or poor your family was, no matter what Christian denomination you belong to, or even what religion you belong to. Basically, my generation had five core religious beliefs. First, we believe there is a God, and he's mostly watching over things. Second, we believe this God wants people to be good, nice, and fair. Third, we believe the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Fourth, we believe God doesn't really get involved in our lives, that is, he's not particularly concerned with how we live, unless there's a big problem that we need God to fix. And finally, we believe good people go to heaven when they die. Now, these beliefs, they kind of resemble Christianity in kind of the same way that I kind of resemble Brad Pitt, right? Um, There are significant differences when you start looking a little bit closer. And when you look closely at my generation, uh, things get very fuzzy, one of the most common words that the researchers heard when they asked people in my generation to sort of elaborate on some of the beliefs that they'd brought up, one of the most common responses was the word, whatever. As in, so you believe that God the Father raised Jesus his son from the dead. What does that mean? Oh, you know, whatever. Whatever. What my generation does believe is that basically religions should be about being nice. And and as a corollary to that, we believe that having any strong or specific beliefs, especially beliefs about God, we don't think that's very nice to have those strong beliefs. Uh, The researchers said that these teens were extremely cautious about judging whether an action might be morally right or wrong. Uh, they described the teens as reflexively non-judgmental. They're like, oh, who am I to judge? Their religion is not a religion of, like, repenting from sin or striving for holiness or spending yourself on behalf of others in gratitude for God's grace. No, they said that the dominant religion of U.S. teenagers is, for all practical purposes mostly about feeling good about yourself and having a sense of happiness and security. The researchers describe the God of this religion as a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. Uh, He's always on call. Uh, He takes care of problems that come up. He helps people feel better about themselves, uh, but he doesn't get too personally involved in the process. And they call this new religion moral therapeutic deism. And it made me wonder, how would history have been different if Shifra and Pua believed not in the God of the Bible or the God of Israel, but instead believed in the God of moral, therapeutic deism? What if they believed that the most important thing about their faith was feeling good about themselves and having a sense of happiness and security? What if when the king of Egypt asked them to dispose of male Hebrew babies, their reflexes kicked in? Uh, Who are they to judge? I mean, I'm sure the king has good reasons. They don't want to offend him. They sensed probably, rightly, that objecting or resisting would create some conflict that might adversely affect their happiness, right? And so when the king asked them to kill the babies, they said, well, sure, whatever, So the story of Shifra and Pua, the biblical one, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It starts when the king of Egypt calls in these midwives for a conversation. And he tells them uh, that when a Hebrew baby comes, if it's a boy, they should kill him. If it's a girl, they should let him live. It's a pretty clear order. And yet, we read that the Hebrew midwives ignored the king of Egypt and let the boys live. It's a really bold move. Uh, They had to know that Pharaoh was going to find out, and he does. And so he calls them in, and he's like, what's the deal? I thought I was really clear. Like, what's the deal with all these Hebrew baby boys running around? Now, it's worth noting, their lives hang in the balance, okay? Pharaoh is evil enough to order the deaths of babies, okay? You do not mess with this guy. So he asked them, you know, why are you not cooperating? And in response... They give him the most obviously made-up, least plausible cover story in the history of cover stories. Okay. Schiffer's like, ah, oh, well, you know, uh, Mr. Farrell, yeah, about the baby boys. Um, I don't know if you really want me to get into this. Uh, it's kind of a woman thing. Uh, but, I mean, if you really need to know... Uh, It turns out that Hebrew women are different from Egyptian women. And Pua's like, yeah, 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 like the Hebrew women, the Hebrew women, they're like, uh, yeah, like what's the word? Uh, Yeah, they're more vigorous. You know, it's like we try. I mean, man, we are just like sprinting to these houses. Like as soon as we find out the baby is coming, I mean, we are really trying here you know, to deliver the babies, then kill them, just like you said, sir, you know, and then we get there, and it's like, man, they are just so vigorous, you know, it's like, just the vigor in these women is so vigorous, you know? I think we need to just take a moment from the story, take a break here, because much of the scholarship about this passage has to do with uh, ethics so, I mean, this situation sort of raises the question, like, uh, is it ever okay to lie? Right? So, I mean, the classic example from the last century, like, the Nazis are at your door. They're, they're banging on the door. You're hiding Jews in the basement. Uh, is it okay to lie to the guys at the door? right? And this is kind of like one of these examples, right? Except I really almost don't think this is a lie, uh, It is such a stupid explanation. Uh, I mean, if Pharaoh even had like a cursory knowledge of female biology, I mean, I mean, this guy, this guy is building pyramids that are still standing today, right? He's enslaved whole nations. You'd think he'd be wise to this explanation. I mean, I think it's less a lie as it is just an insult to his face. Shifra and Puah cannot actually believe they're going to get away with this. I mean, they must be assuming he's just going to kill them on the spot. But then he doesn't kill them. He just moves on, lets them go. He's going to find some other way to get what he wants. And I think to people... Throughout the centuries, Shifra and Puah, you know, even though their plan didn't ultimately stop Pharaoh, these two women have become like heroes of moral conviction. You know, like strong women who stood up and in their own sort of clever way subverted evil and even made it look kind of silly in the process. And I think that all of us want to believe that we would be just like Shifra and Puah. All right, we all want to believe that like, when the time came and we faced some pharaoh, right, some tyrant bent on evil, some temptation to compromise our principles, to make our lives a little easier, we all want to believe that in that moment we would stay strong. That in that moment, even though it could cost us everything, we all like to believe that we would be fearless like Shifra and Pua. Except there's one thing Shifra and Pua. We're not fearless. You know, we know almost nothing about these women. They show up and they disappear in six verses. We never hear from them again. We know almost nothing about them. But there's one thing we do know. They were not fearless. They feared God. They feared God. And I think this is part of the key to great moral courage. Fearlessness is not the key. The key to great moral courage is to fear the right thing. Pharaoh assumes that the God of the Israelites is basically the same as the God of moral therapeutic deism. He assumes that the God of Israel is this undemanding softy who just wants everybody to get along and feel good about themselves. And so when you want to get something done, you don't go to the God of Israel. You go to men like Pharaoh. He gets stuff done. He has power. He is the one you should fear. Except Shifra and Puah don't fear Pharaoh. They insult him to his face. They don't fear Pharaoh, they fear God. And because of that, they risk their own lives to do what's right. one of the concerns of those who read christian smith's study on american teens one of the concerns was they wondered like does this new religion have any backbone like would it ever stand up for what's right against a corrupt mainstream like when Nazis take power in Germany or racists rise up in South Africa, when the dominant culture loses its way, would adherents of this religion even know that they were lost? If standing up for what's right became costly, Would they stand? Or would they just cave to pressure in the hopes of preserving good feelings? Again, I I know how we'd all like to answer that question. We'd all like to think that we would be courageous. But I know my own heart. I, I spend a lot of time trying to win the approval of others. I like people to like me. Uh, to like my jokes, to like my style, to like my values. Most of us like it when people like us. And when people like you, life tends to be a lot more comfortable. And so that's what we work for, right? And we try to get God to sort of fit into our comfortable, likable lives. But this is the thought I cannot get out of my head. What if a successful life is not necessarily a comfortable one? What if being a Christian was not sort of vaguely admirable in the eyes of our friends as it probably is for a lot of us now? But what if people found you offensive? I'm I'm not saying we should be jerks or have attitudes or anything, but what if your convictions were strong enough, solid enough that they made moral therapeutic deists a little uneasy? Not excluded, but just like a little uncomfortable. Like, and what if, what if we didn't all fit in so well with the world? And, and maybe we're even a little bit uncomfortable ourselves in the world. See, with, with moral therapeutic deism, this will never happen. Because the God of moral therapeutic deism, he will never offend or challenge us except in like exactly the ways it is socially acceptable to offend and challenge us. So that whatever our friends think is important, whatever the other parents at school think is important to own, or to buy, or to think, or to watch, or to listen to, right? we can get the God of moral therapeutic deism to give that owning, that buying, that thinking, that watching, that listening... He'll give it a blessing. He doesn't care. But here's a question for you What if God is not just a bland cheerleader who always agrees with us? What if God is real? And what if he really does care about how we live our lives and the choices we make? The Bible often describes those who know God best as God-fearing people. Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 10, right before he, he warns his disciples about the steep cost of following him, right before he tells them, They should expect things to get rough if they're really going to be in his kingdom. Jesus himself says this. He says, do not be afraid of those who want to kill your body. Oh, okay. (laughs) Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body because they can't touch your soul. Jesus says, fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What if God is real? What if God really does care about how we live our lives and the choices we make? What if there are consequences? I think that the the moral, therapeutic deist in me, probably in all of us, has lost sight of the words of the proverb, "The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Maybe we have not even begun to be wise because the God we worship has never been in our eyes either holy or powerful. He's not to be feared or held in awe. He's really just one of the guys, only nicer. But note the words of the proverb carefully. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the place to start, right? For all of us, as we look at the ways we fall short, remember a few weeks ago we talked about taking this fearless moral inventory. When we do that and we see the idols that we cling to, right, or or the times that we do things our own way without even really worrying about what God thinks, I think we realize we have got a long way to go. And maybe we could use a little fear, a sense of urgency that our lives are not as they should be. Whether that means confessing our sins or, or seeking to repent, to turn from an old way of life to a new way of life. Those are good places to start. And yet it is important to say that in the Jesus story, which is the story that gathers us every week, fear is not the last word. And it may be the beginning of wisdom, but it doesn't get us all the way to wisdom. To get us all the way, we need love. Uh, But not just any love, not just bland, good feelings, right? We need a very specific kind of love. We need a very costly love. A love, you might say, that would go as far as the cross. To die for us. So that the the fearsome God, who may threaten my ego and challenge my pride or my spending habits, who may overturn my life, (laughs) he will not overturn me. So that the fearful God who hates and judges my sin, who cannot tolerate the sight of my idolatry and injustice and lack of mercy, can nevertheless look at his Son and pardon me. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We serve an awesome God. But his perfect love will also drive out all fear. For our mighty God has sent his son that we might call him Father. Let's pray together.